Hi. Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to let you know about some bonus content from Spotlight On. Head over to spotlightonpodcast.com slash blog and check out Bonus Tracks, the official blog of this podcast. There you'll find special material exclusive to the website, including music recommendations, artist interviews, essays, and more. Have a look. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on David Rodriguez, Executive Vice President and Executive Producer at NJPAC, the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. David works in his hometown of Newark, New Jersey, and has led a fascinating life in the performing arts. He was a full-time musician on the road with groups ranging from Isaac Hayes to Tito Puente to the Rochester Philharmonic. He studied at Juilliard, the Eastman School of Music, and Mansfield University. David worked at Carnegie Hall, Aaron Davis Hall, AOL Live, and the historic Apollo Theater. At NJPAC, he creates diverse programs that resonate far beyond the four walls of the venue. In fact, into the very heart of the community it serves and the lives of the musicians it works with. David takes us through his life, his career, his philosophies, and the important work he and others do at NJPAC. I have no doubt you'll enjoy hearing all about it as much as I do. I have to say, there's so much I want to talk to you about. And I generally try to defer to the side of focus, but I think I'm going to go with ambition and try to cover a bunch of ground, if that's okay with you. Wherever it takes us. Wherever you all right. Be. Yeah, there's so much going on in and around the venue and lots of things I want to talk about that you're involved with there. But I would love to start because I think it's so integral to what you do. I'd love to start with getting, you know, the general background on you. I mean, being from Newark, being part of the arts community now there. Can you talk to me about your background and your first forays into the world of music? Sure. I was born in the projects here in Newark. Started out as a as a classical player, a classical guitar player, and decided there were more gigs to be played playing bass. So every weekend I would take my bass and uh, take lessons in the city. I found some scholarships and uh, at a certain point went on the road. So uh, I had worked with uh, Max Roach and Tito Puente, Chuck Mangione, even some rock bands like Pablo Cruz. Decided at a certain point it'd be better to. Be better to be that person. I was never going to be the best bass player in the world, but maybe I could be that person who created a link between the artist and the booker or the producer or that type of thing. And I, you know, and it's kind of like what a bass player does. This player is involved in making the soloist sound better. It's about creating a foundation under the artist. And I think some of the best arts administrators I know are bass players who I've learned from. Wow. Well, it's a, it's a bass player mentality to be a producer. So I kind of went around in a bunch of different places. I was at Carnegie Hall. I ran the Apollo for 10 years in, in Harlem. And it's nice to be home. Yeah. Just to, to break down the transition a little bit, you were a touring musician, I take it, right? Yeah. What were the first sort of administrative or business side gigs? And were you leading 
a parallel life for a while or did you just get off the road and say, I'm a business guy now? Like, how did that transition work? It was a little of both. It was uh, sick of diesel fumes from uh, from tour buses. Yeah. You know, it was too much time with Woody Herman and people who were a lot older than me. And I went and got a degree by teaching bass. Went and got a business degree and I was an intern at Carnegie Hall before I worked there. I mean, life is about balance. So I still perform. I'm performing this weekend for six shows at Berglund. So I still keep my feet in both sides of the world. A lot of that is to ground myself as I speak to, whether it's a dancer or a musician or whatever it might be, a poet. We're all grounded in the same way and have that same mentality and having that understanding of what it's like to be on the road and how you treat somebody to get something, get the best out of them artistically. That's what's exciting. I was talking to someone the other day and it was one of those, um, the, being a musician is one of the only things you can do that if you do it really well, everyone stands up and applauds. And being a producer is like that too, but you realize that you can stand backstage or in the back of the house, and if they're applauding, you derive enjoyment that you were a little part of that. I don't necessarily think my job has changed. I'm just utilizing my talents in a different way. Mm. In the context of your day-to-day work life. What is it that a producer does? Something different every day, which is what makes it exciting. If anything, you're the court of last resort and there's a problem, but you're also that initial point of contact with the artist at the optimal point where you can say, how can you create an environment around this person to create the best work possible? Sometimes an artist can have an, what you think is an awful idea. And sometimes the best thing you can do is to produce it so it gets out of their head and they move on to something else. And I've had that happen with, you know, people like Butch Morse. He wanted to do a German opera. It's just one of those things where it's like, I don't think so. And when we were done, we were like, yeah, shouldn't have done that. But after that, he wrote some of his best work because it was like a colonoscopy for <laughs> getting that out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> the artistic colonoscopy. <laughs> and then other times it's just realizing the artists and realizing the environment, the type of venues they should, can be in, whatever it is. you know. And sometimes that's finding collaborators. And sometimes that's just creating a safe space. I did I did 12 cities with Snoop Dogg right when he got out of prison and had to negotiate with the, the Crips, the Bloods, and the Latin Kings in every market right after Suge Knight got out of jail. That was when I was running the Apollo. So, I mean, it can take on a bunch of different roles. <laughs> yeah. But, but overall, it's how do you develop that relationship where there's trust and feel like you're, you're part of the solution? Given that you've been on both sides of the ledger, from an artist's point of view, what is it that the artist thinks you're doing or is hoping you're doing? I think the artist wants a comfortable environment, a safe environment. I think a safe environment where failure is okay is important. The expansion of an idea as opposed to playing the same songs every night. There's lots of days where we have a tour and the same band plays their hits, and the audiences love those hits. But the exciting moments are when you can say, you know, we did something called Represent with Christian McBride mm. last season, and it had Chuck D and Rock Kim, along with Sonia Sanchez and Nikki Giovanni, 
along with a number of jazz artists as well. How do you put those items together and um, make it work? Add a videographist, add a, those are the exciting parts where you're actually a collaborator with the artists and they see something, not just because of you, but because of the other people that they're working with that they don't normally get to work with. When you can make a Tuesday night a good night. Um, I was working with Max Roach once and uh, he had worked a long time with Clifford Brown. They were, both he and Sonny Rollins were together the night that Clifford Brown died. And for a long time, they didn't play together. So called him up one night. I was working at Aaron Davis Hall up in Harlem and said, let's just get together and play duets and we'll give all the money to Hale House. Just see what comes out. The same thing happened with, with Max Roach and uh, Cecil Taylor. There's a night that if you can talk to people and say, why don't we just get together and see what happens? Those are the nights when you're really being a producer as opposed to a facilitator of a tour. Are you ever intimidated or hesitant to voice your idea? You know, because I would imagine you're working with big personalities. They often have strong points of view. How do you overcome that? You have to put on your bass player hat and <laughs> say you're there to support. And it's hard sometimes when you're an artist and you have your own opinion and you have to realize that this is not about your opinion. If it's asked for, you know, you're there. If you can offer things that reinforce. I've gotten to the point now that I'm, I very rarely go gaga over being with an artist. But there was one time I was in my early 20s and I was asked to go out to lunch with the person who was heading up CBS Records and Quincy Jones. Quincy was everything to me. So they were going through some programming and Quincy looks at me and this is before I knew him. He said, so what do you think about that, Dave? This is looking at some programming from Montreux. And all I could think of saying was, why would, why do you even care to ask? <laughs> Does it even matter? There's things that you say in your head and you don't expect to actually literally say, well, I said it. And they both looked at me and I was like, no, no, I'm here to listen. You know, and to a certain point, that person is still with me whenever I'm meeting with an artist. I'm really interested in what their perspective is. If I can help it, great. If I can make a couple of calls to bring somebody else into the room, great. But I'm really interested in what they have to say. I'm interested in a comment you made earlier about in relation to the safe space and sometimes the safe space being a place where it's okay to fail. Obviously, there's as many definitions of failure as there are of success. But I wonder, as an arts administrator, how do you balance making it safe to fail with any sort of commercial responsibility or financial responsibility you have? And is failure simply the audience doesn't know, it just isn't artistically right? Or can you have something that's like a disaster and the public doesn't want it? <laughs> I think you have to define success before you start. Lots of people define failure and success after something's already completed, whether it be artistic or anything. And that's just way a way to put an alibi against something that, that you say, oh, that didn't work, but this is by did. I think you have to define those goals to begin with. And I think um, I learned from a gentleman I work with here, our CEO, John Schreiber. He worked with a group called Participant Productions. They did films like Water for Elephants and The Soloist and that type of thing. And the people who funded it keep two P&Ls, profit and loss statements, one of them based on mission and one based on dollars. So I always think of when we do a project, 
how do you look at a project in terms of the profit from a mission point of view and the profit from a dollar point of view? And if you can do well on both, that's great. But if you do well on one and not as well on another one, that's okay too. I mean, we toured a, um, a bilingual show called Shadow's Kitchen to, to schools that barely covered its own costs, but it dealt with food insecurity and uh, traveled to 60 markets around the country. And that was high on the mission PL. The fact that it broke even on the other, it's a win. But you define those things beforehand. And you can't just look at it in terms of dollars. You know, you have to keep the, you have to keep things running. You have to balance those two P&Ls against other projects. And that's why you do a bunch of projects. I mean, we do 600 shows a year. So it's easy to balance against other ones. So you take sort of a portfolio approach. If at the end of the year, your portfolio comes out ahead, you've done all right. Exactly. Both P&Ls. Yeah. Is the mission P&L literal or figurative? Like, is it a document that has criteria that says we reached underserved audiences or we subsidized X number of tickets? Yeah, there are, there are specific goals. It's going in, say, how many schools do we want to go to? How many people do we want to reach? What's the change? How do you measure change? Is there a, was there something you do afterwards that you look at how the two change as it relates to those audiences? Are there ways that you can link to community organizations that can get rid of a, you know, a food insecurity issue in those markets? But then there are the intangibles where we do a hip hop nutcracker that comes to NJPAC every year. Wonderful thing. Started out here, tours to over 40 cities, got an Emmy award for a PBS show, and we just sold it on over to Disney for the next five years. Wow. But the coolest part of it are the master classes that happen with the dancers, that they can speak to classical, they can speak to, to hip hop. And Curtis Blow, who's kind of our, our Drosselmeyer type, he just had a heart transplant at the heart of a 35 year old. So as far as he's concerned, he's 36 and a half right now. Just got off the phone with him this morning. But he can speak to, you know, in communities of color to speak to issues of health and looking at where you are in terms of health, by getting regular treatment, all that type of thing. And if you do well, if you work hard, here's a guy with a new heart who's still doing hip hop dance on the stage a year and a half later. So there's success. And I don't know how you measure that, but you can measure it in the eyes of the people who are coming. You can measure it in smiles. You can measure it in family. And those are all good things, too. A lot of the things you talk about and in reading about you and, and some of your words before we spoke, it's so clear that the theme or the notion of mission comes through so strongly and, and community as well. Two things that I think are probably you can't you can't disentangle. But I wonder if you could comment on those two things in the specific context of Newark. What does being a mission-driven arts organization and what does community mean for Newark? Community is a broad term. Community can be artists. Community can be attendees. Community can be those people at your front door. They can be those concentric circles related to a tour or a television show or whatever. My feeling about coming back to Newark was making a difference every day in Newark. I'm at a point now in my 60s, and uh, I choose to work with what I do because I have a passion for it. But as somebody who came from South Boyden Projects, we just announced that we're going to start a film studio on those 14 acres where they've been basically nothing's happened there in 20 years. 
We cleaned up the asbestos. We cleaned up the lead paint. We're building a film studio there. There'll be a high school next door that'll teach programs in film and music. People will get union cards. People will get fellowships to go there. It's an enduring impact issue as it relates to that studio. On top of it, we're building a new education center across the street, and that has rehearsal spaces on the top, 70 by 65-foot spaces, separate rehearsal spaces, all that type of thing. So the thought is looking at the city of Newark and saying, how do you create a hub for creativity? So if I'm an artist, I can go and I can give a grant to someone to work on a piece, and then if they want to tour it, and tech it, they can come over to NJPAC. If they want to film it, they can go over there to the film studio. In a sense, from a business point of view, from a business P&L, working in Newark is 30 cents on the dollar versus working in New York City for something like that. We have a, a governor in Governor Murphy who's created a film tax credit. So in a sense, an artist can come here and have the ability to fail, as we said before, but also have the ability to succeed content is all about not just creating the content, but the distribution of that content. If a tree falls in the forest, I can tell you that nobody hears it. And if it falls in the forest too many times and nobody hears it, it dies and the forest dies too. That's what I know in terms of the arts. Victories of premieres are things that we thought about in the 80s and the 90s. How do you sustain content is what's important in 2020. So a lot of what you just described Sounds expensive, <laughs> despite it being 20 or 30 cents on the dollar, because the dollar is expensive these days. But who are your constituents? Like when it's time to build a movie studio on those 14 acres, who do you turn to? You ever, uh, you ever see that play Other People's Money? <laughs> also produced in New Jersey, first time commissioned here. It's a partnership between the public sector, the private sector, and in this particular case, Lionsgate Films. And a group called the Studio Group, who stepped up and they run a number of different studios. And we created a partnership. It's all about being entrepreneurial. That's probably the biggest project we're working on right now. But at the same time, we have one of the three largest arts education programs in the country. And no child's turned away because of an inability to pay. There's a whole residency for young women who want to be jazz musicians who often are told they can't. Um, they can come for free and learn from people like Regina Carter and Terry Carrington, all of that type of thing. Yeah, there there are people who can afford to pay, and they do. But more importantly, the people who can't sit in that same room, and you can't tell how much each of them made. People just judge each other by, can you play or can you not? Do you care or do you not care? Are you trying to strive forward? The um, RX Education Department is one of the most amazing places in the world. They'll create new pieces based on things that they're dealing with every day. And some of those issues are pretty tough, so much so that we've embedded social workers into our arts education programs because the things we joke around oftentimes, our parents always say, oh, we had it much harder than you. I think this might be one of the first generations that are, you know, having it harder than their parents between cyberbullying and all the issues of COVID, all of those types of things, I can't even imagine being a person right now. So having those types of programs that link what someone's passionate about, some children deal with sports as a way to deal with their issues. People who come here deal with the arts. And that can be poetry, that can be visual art, that can be just basic literacy. And they have a home 
and it's safe and they can express themselves and it makes a difference. How would you describe Newark right now? What's the state of the city? What's the trajectory? I think Newark is evolving. You know, even 20, 30 years ago, Newark was a completely different place. You know, and NJPAC is celebrating its 25th anniversary. When this space was built, walking down Route 21 was a much different place. Now, uh, Marcus Samuelson has built a, a, a restaurant a block away from NJPAC, where we have 600,000 people a year who come in, not just people who come off the highway and run back on, but they're coming here and they're saying, gosh, I'll go to the Iron Bound section. And I'll, I'll get a bite to eat. I'll see what's happening with all those cherry blossoms at Branchville Park. All those types of things. You know, Newark is now a place to go. It doesn't mean it still doesn't have challenges. We're really fortunate to have a mayor in Ross Baraka who had a father in Amiri Baraka who was a dear old friend who was a poet, you know, spoke about a future in his, in his poetry for Newark. It's really actualizing itself right now. That said, the future is diversity. Someone said to me, in terms of audiences, diversity isn't just good mission, it's good business. Ten years from now, that what everyone's saying are minority cons- constituencies are going to be majority constituencies. As they say, you don't skate to the puck, you skate to where the puck is going. And it's not just African-American and all the different type of Latino audiences you can have between the Brazilian, Portuguese, Mexican, Puerto Rican, Cuban, so on and so forth, but a huge Indian community, South Asian community. I mean, we were doing uh, K-pop before anyone was doing K-pop because we realized that's a growing constituency in the state. We started out doing Gilberto Santa Rosa here at NJPAC, and now we do all of his Northeastern dates because he says, you know, you know, you know my community. You know how to get to these people. And it's building that relationship. And as those relationships build, they have multiplying effects and success breeds success. That's really exciting. We'll be back with more Spotlight On after this break. If you're enjoying this conversation, please visit the show notes in your podcast app. They're packed with links to resources that will take you deeper into the people and topics explored here. Thanks. And now back to spotlight on. I want to get to I want to get to some of the current things that are going on and some of the things going on later this year. But could you talk to me a little bit about not necessarily COVID in particular or the depth of COVID, but more about how your organization reemerged from COVID? How fast did it take you to get back to scale, or how long did it take you to get back to scale? Are you back at scale? Is your world? different now or is it does it look exactly like it was like what's the after effect of covid for you well for one i don't think we lost scale i think we programmed our way out of covid to a certain degree when lots of people were getting rid of their programming departments and losing connection with their audiences and their students and their communities we said what can we do so within a week we were making virtual content and we produced, gosh, over 500 events during COVID. Incredible. Free to the public. Originally, we thought, oh, we can charge like $2 a piece or something like that. And at the end of the day, we said, if we can attach our brand, if we can attach the brand of a sponsor, you know, we, we ended up doing like the Hip Hop Nutcracker. We went virtual. And we reached 10,000 classrooms around the country with master classes, all of those types of things. The... Uh, 
John Lewis's new film we did with the filmmakers and, you know, all that type of thing. And we reached you know, 70 different performing arts centers around the country. So in a sense, we were providing a service not just to the audiences, but to those performing arts centers that needed to keep a grasp somehow on those audience members. And it sustained us through. So we've still been saying, what can we do virtually as well now? Now virtual content is part of what we do. So what is practical, what isn't practical? So that's something new. The artists who before were like, oh, no, you can't tape anything are like, gosh, this is a way that I hold on to staff members and people are a little less hesitant, particularly if you can say it's non-commercial, saying, listen, we can enhance brand. We can get your work out there a little bit further, all that type of thing. So I think when it was a crisis is opportunity. I'm not saying it's good crisis, but I'm saying crisis is opportunity. So we were able to get out of there. In terms of audiences coming back to live events, First and foremost, there's nothing like a live event. People sit there and say, well, you know, have all these virtual shows. No one's going to come back to live events. I'm like, I've produced Aretha Franklin live and um, and I've heard her albums. And the two are not the same. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. The uh, So I, I was never really that concerned about it. But I can tell you certain constituencies came back sooner. Diversity audiences came back sooner. Younger audiences Younger audiences, I don't think, felt the peril quite as much. And younger audiences still have that drive for socialization and seeing people in person. More senior audiences took a little bit more time, and some of them have not completely come back. Some of our classical symphonic programs took a little bit longer, and even some of our some of our standard dance programs and that type of thing and jazz. But our comedy, our hip-hop all that type of thing. I mean, gosh, last Wednesday, we filled 12,000 seats with DJ Cassidy, or Jawa, Ashanti, and Buster Rhymes, and all those people, and there's no problem at all. But it basically, this whole transition allowed us to do as well as not look at our space as a place where we're trying to drive audiences. It's about how to create content and make it go beyond there. So in a sense, there's 40% of our shows now don't happen in NJPAC. This coming month, we have at the Prudential Arena, Santana, Alanis Morissette, Bill Burr, and Jasmine Sullivan on consecutive days. We're doing the same thing in Atlantic City and in Asbury Park. So you're a real alternative as a regional promoter. Mm -hmm. Yes. I have great respect for AEG and Live Nation and the people who run it and all that type of thing. But I think... For small and regional like we are, we can't amortize a tour over 50 dates. We have four or five dates we can't afford to lose. So we take dates in areas where we know those communities. We know that if we do something at the arena in Newark, we can do it at the Barclays Center too or at Madison Square Garden. We know we can do Newark and the Beacon. And we can add on Boardwalk Hall and Asbury Park. And we can just put those things together. We started out doing, you know, Give Up to Santa Rosa at the Beacon last year, and now he'll do NJ Pack and Radio City Music Hall. So it's it's the relationship. It's that's still that producing relationship and that trust where they trust you as a person, but they also trust you from a fiduciary responsibility as well. Are you seeing any lingering effects around like 
are your drop counts off? Are you selling tickets, but no show rates are high? Or are there different patterns in your ticketing on sale, sort of demand curves? Initially, that was the situation. There were some like classical shows where you would have, you know, sold 1800 seats and only 900 showed up, but they wanted to support the orchestra. And I think that is incredibly cool. I know a lot of, a lot of people who are with theaters where their subscribers stayed on, but they weren't necessarily all coming. I think that's fading into the past. I think people are saying, gosh, I need to get out of my house. Yeah. Um, makes sense. That said, I think the older communities are now boomers and that kind of thing. They never went out every Friday night. They look for events rather than looking for an artist who comes every year. I think you have to look curatorially and say, how do I create more events as opposed to just make sure I catch that one date on the route? Yeah. There's definitely a few other topics I want to jump into with you. But before I change tack, I, I want to ask you a little bit about classical. You have such a sprawling mandate there or such a such a, a wide scope of ambition in terms of what you program. And I'm curious as to how you are thinking about classical programming, a slice of your mind share, where it has to fit in your mix going forward. Like is, is classical endangered from your point of view? Will there, do you have a preservationist role? I'm so curious about where that, that world's going. It's a great question. I always shy away from what I call museum music, where it's just redoing something that other people have done. I think there's an audience problem with classical music. A lot of touring orchestras who we deal with have seen, you know, success in doing movies. We, you know, we'll do Harry Potter with Symphony or Star Wars. Or but that doesn't teach somebody symphonic form. It really doesn't. We haven't had a Leonard Bernstein kind of sit down with people and make them fall in love with classical repertoire in a long time. And even more so, I don't think enough people are looking at things in non-traditional ways as it relates to classical. That said, the rock stars of classical, if you look at next year's programming, we're focusing on violinists. So we have Itzhak Perlman, we have Midori with Lucerne, we have Josh Bell with Academy of St. Martin's in the Fields, all that type of thing. And the great thing about all three of them is they will talk to young people. They will cultivate a new audience. We can have them go into the schools. We can have young people do preludes. We can give out free programs. And these are charismatic people who mix stories with what they do. It's not just this going through the repertoire and every orchestra doing, you know, making sure they have one, one Beethoven program. Yeah. I mean, that's the first step towards death as far as I'm concerned with classical. It's a similar issue that has gone through with, with, with jazz. There's a group of people who said, you know, if it stopped swinging in 1952, it's really not jazz anymore. Those old debates that had used to happen with different people whose names I will not mention, but all of whom are friends of mine. <laughs> but I mean, classical was an everyday man's music way back when, as is jazz. And jazz is, you know, whatever you hear as you walk down the street, as far as I'm concerned. So whether you call that avant-garde, whether you call that a, a collaboration with a hip-hop artist, I am so fortunate to work with Christian McBride as my uh, jazz advisor. And he oversees all our jazz programming here at NJPAC. And he's open to those types of things. We're working on a 
Peggy Lee and Frank Sinatra program, but we have Brian Stokes Mitchell, Rachel Price, T.D. Bridgewater, Betty LeVette. It, it doesn't have to be dusty. It can still be vibrant. Sometimes the music is just a, a shell into which you throw creativity. It doesn't have to be repeating. I repeat it. Someone else has done it better already. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of where he comes from. And why Christian is so brilliant in so many different ways. It's really interesting that you name him and also the parallel between what's happened in jazz and what maybe could be a potential future for classical. I'm on the West Coast now, but I grew up in Connecticut and spent a couple of decades in New York and going to jazz shows. And I feel like I have a slightly different perspective than somebody strictly from the West Coast in that when a lot of the East Coast artists tour, especially the, you know, the more contemporary people like Christian or Keon Harrell or people like that, who are known for a little bit more genre blurring, the further they get from New York, the more their programming has to be more about jazz, right? Like three guys in a suit or, you know, a quartet, whatever it is. And, Expect the bandstand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 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 But it's, it's really interesting that that tension in classical of like, you know, you talked about the movie music. I have no problem with crowd pleasing, right? It's fun. It's actually fun to see those scores live. But sometimes I feel it's more about like that, that those programs are about employing classical musicians than anything else. I mean, that's great because it, I guess it can expand reach. But then you have a segment of the audience that goes and sees Mozley Mozart or the Beethoven programming or whatever, who maybe won't go to a modern classical, a new composer series, say. But then there's another part of the audience that wants the new composer series, that wants to be on that cutting edge, just like people who like rock music or jazz or anything else. Like they want that what's new. Yeah, to, to the American Composers Orchestra, or do you subscribe to the Philharmonic? You know, but and and a lot of times you'll see people. We're gonna we're gonna drop this bomb, this Ned Warham or this Vitor Ludislavsky in the middle of your, in the middle of your program, just to kind of say, hey, we did a living composer, or whatever. And, and those are both non-living at this point. They were living when I started doing this business. But in a sense, I think there's that midpoint where you can be creative. You know, there is something about seeing Antonio Sanchez doing that type of live music with movies. And, and you can say, gosh, I'd love to hear Antonio. Antonio is one of the most, one of the most melodic drummers in the world. It kind of reminds me more of Max than anybody. I sometimes, sometimes shed a bit of a tear when I hear him play because I remember Max. There are those types of programs where, you know, particularly people who come, you know, Tyson Sorley came from our arts education program here. And, you know, now is teaching in Princeton and now is doing a tribute program for Max that we're working on for next season because it's centennial for Max. At the same time, similarly, we're um, Max did the Freedom Now Suite, which was done in 1962. I did a 30th anniversary program with him in 92, where we had Ozzie Davis and Babatunde Olatunji was still around. It became this piece looking at 30 years of social justice. The thing about social justice now is like everyone talks about social justice. Do you see all the change? It's like, I don't know whether I see the change. I see press. I'm not sure I see change. Yeah, I kind of have to wait 10 years to see if you see change. So now we're going to go another 30 years and we're having Sonia Sanchez as well as some new younger poets do programs to work. And, you know, uh, Nasheed is playing drums. Didi Bridgewater is singing. 
Robbie Coltrane is is playing. I mean, it's it's a matter of you can take those old pieces and put them in a new social context and see how they resonate and then look at the past versus the future. It's those pieces that otherwise could be dusty could be those transformative structures that let you look. My sister is a Shakespeare scholar and she she's always has told me looking at those various things in the, in the social context of when they were written and looking at the 60s versus the 90s versus the 2020s is amazing. And using something like a Freedom Now suite to do it, those are the exciting things. That's the good stuff. What's incredible about hearing you say that is, I would assume you've maybe had this revelation, but you're the connective tissue there between Max doing it 30 years ago and presenting it in a new context now. I mean, that's a powerful position to sit in. And sharing that so that 30 years from now, somebody else produces it and it won't be the same because God darn it, Max wouldn't want it to be the same. That was one thing about Max. It's like going on tour with, with Herbie Hancock. It's every night it's in a different key. Every night it's a different tempo. Every night, Because it's not about just playing the hits. Yeah. It's not touring with a rock band and making sure what's on the radio is getting played. It's that creating context for expression. I would love if you would do the same program, except do the music of uh, Africa Brass, because uh, I think Coltrane had a lot of the same themes running through the songs on the on, on those albums, and uh, that would be my. That's my. I'm gonna I'm gonna submit a request form to you for that. I will write it down. <laughs> I saw a show maybe a decade or so ago. There was a week at the Blue Note, and McCoy Tyner did it with Charles Tolliver. They did the music of Africa Brass, and uh, I mean it was incredible. It was wonderful to see it with a large band. But it was a little bit more backwards looking. You know what I mean? They were they were recreating the music. It was stunning, wonderful to hear live. But I'd love to hear it in the hands of some some reinterpretation. Anyway, I would love to talk a little bit about a topic I, I love talking to people about, which is the current state of jazz. And especially people who are, I'm going to say, around our age. You alluded to it earlier. You know, I grew up in that era where the big question was, is jazz dead? You had the traditionalists and then anything that was like an electric instrument was sacrilege or, you know, there was just this this awful generational divide and debate. And then there were the young lions who made it harder because they aligned with one era or another. You know, the whole thing. You lived through it. You saw it. You probably had to book through a lot of it and play through a lot of it. But jazz seems to be at such an incredible point right now that I didn't. I'm so excited to see in my lifetime. I wasn't sure I was going to where Young people talk about it. Hip-hop artists talk about it. Electronic artists talk about it. They, The musicians are playing with each other. They're borrowing idioms. I wonder how those elements, are they real? Are you feeling it? Are you seeing it? Are you excited about it? What's jazz look like from where you sit? I feel the same excitement, but I have always felt the same excitement from those visionaries. You talk to Robert Glasper working with Common and, you know, heck, even working with Dave Chappelle now. It goes the whole realm. It's back to the old, there's only two types of music, good music and that other shit. Those people who are doing good music are going to continue to do good music. And as long as you don't create a definition that stifles that creativity, definitions are what stops that and resources from time to time. Yeah. But I mean, good musicians find good musicians. And the other cool thing about it is it's multi-generational. There are these people who kind of respect, respect so much the history. As with George Clinton, 
who was born in Newark. He started P-Funk at the Avon Avenue School in the fifth grade. And we did an 80th birthday party for him. Q-Tip showed up. All these, all the, all the Eric B and uh, Rakim, all these various artists just kind of showed up because they understood what they were talking about. They understood what the roots were and they wanted to perform live and link those two things. And then seeing someone like George go and talk to a bunch of fifth graders who weren't even alive when Atomic Dog was released and they're dressed like Funketeers. They know the music because their parents played the music. He's walking in with a bunch of Q-Dogs, you know, and is singing Atomic Dog with these young people. We then arranged for these two companies to put all the musical equipment in the schools where they went. And then they ended up coming to the concert. And I think, gosh, come January, Audible is going to release a new Audible original with George about the origins of funk. Creating those linkages, I was with George and I worked a lot with James Brown. And I asked James one night, what's the definition of funk? He said, it's a groove so righteous, you don't touch, you don't tap your foot, you break your leg. And I shared that with George. And he's like, you know, my funk travels in the atmosphere above James's funk. So now we're going to do something with George with Snoop. And the thought is, how does that now interact? And who is going to be that next person that takes that foundation and builds on top of it and then shares it with these young people and doesn't just tell them about what they're doing, but what brought them to this path. And I think that's what builds ownership. That's what makes people excited. It's kind of like when you can have those people be like a sommelier of music. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, so many times people come into music, whether it be ballet, whether it be classical, say, well, I don't really understand, so I don't want to go because I don't want to seem stupid. Having those people around, you say, no, 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 try this. This is good. I think music is like that too. And the artists, in a sense, and sometimes the producers, sometimes the marketing people, sometimes the community engagement team have to be those sommeliers to say, let me introduce you to something really cool. It's not what you thought. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe it's more than you thought. Tell me a little bit about the Moody Jazz Festival and how do you approach programming for that? Do you, are you handling the programming? It's a team approach. As I mentioned, um, Christian is our musical director for the festival. I have a producer who works with me, Craig, and, and I'm part of it as well. I also work with John Schreiber, our CEO, who was with Festival Productions with George Ween forever and ever and ever. We both spend a lot of time with it. So the thought is, when we start, is we look at audiences, we look at diversity, we look at what's new as opposed to what's just touring. We're going to work with Dave Brewson on one of his 80th birthday. will probably be one of his last performances, but probably everyone from GRP who you've ever seen will be on that from the written hour to Tom Kennedy to you name it, the New York Voices, so on and so forth. We're doing the Freedom Now Suite. We're doing the Peggy Lee Frank Sinatra thing that I mentioned. I had worked for a while early on when Buena Vista Social Club toured. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Omar Portundo is going to come up. There's um a number of kind of those standard things, but then you have Lisa Fisher with, you know, ranked Danky, that kind of thing. Sometimes it's cool just to ask, ask an artist who they'd like to perform with. We did a um, program last year where we had uh, Savion Glover and Dee Bridgewater do duets, mm-hmm. which was just superb. It puts you to tears 
and we're going to look probably to tour that at this point. Those are those are the exciting part of things. Steve Ture is coming back. We're going to oh, and it's it's Sarah Vaughan's hundredth anniversary. So we've housed and produced the Sarah Vaughan vocal competition for. Uh, Want to ask about that too? Yeah. And uh, we're really proud this year that Samara Joy who won three years ago won those Grammys, but it's also people like Jasmine Orn and Surreal and me who are all part of uh, what will be our gala in September where we'll uh, honor art. But it's even a more exciting competition now because there are male and female vocalists, but we've been hugely successful in finding amazing, talented people to have it is that punctuation at the end of the jazz festival is always an amazing thing. We had a dancer and vocalist from Mexico with last year. So it's gotten to the point that half of our applicants are international. That's incredible. And it's strange for me to be in this because I spent 10 years producing Showtime at the Apollo uh, when I was there. So I feel like I'm back in the business again. But um, The talent discovery business, yeah. Exactly. But it's um, I think there's a finer finer line to it. And I think that as opposed to the others, I, I think once we get down to the show itself, there are no losers. It's a great way to just go out and hear five amazing voices that you haven't heard before. It's like going to a wine tasting. You can just like, gosh, I've never tasted these things before. I think I'm going to go out and check it out. You said earlier on that you're doing this because you want to. You're driven to do it, not because necessarily you need to punch a clock at this point in your life. How will you know you're done? I hope I'm never done. <laughs> oh my goodness. Do you have an aspiration that you want to see? You, is there something you want to check off the list? Other than my Africa Brass show. I know that's important. Yeah, that, that, that's on the list now. But the, <laughs> um, I've been so fortunate to work with most of the people I wanted to work with. Now it's many cases, it's continuing to work with them and to find new people. Someone asked me, you know, my top five might be or something like that. Mm. It's, I could never do a five. I feel like as a guy who came from the projects in Newark, I've had the most fortunate life in the world. And whenever it stops, it stops. But it's not going to stop for me stopping trying. Yeah. It sounds like as long as they're making young people with instruments or young people who have something to say artistically, you're going you're gonna to be there making it happen. Give it a shot. If I'm not producing, I'll, I'll, I'll bring my bass. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, David Rodriguez and the team at NJPAC. As always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson, and our theme music is by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. For past episodes, web-only exclusives, to make a donation to support our production, and to join our mailing list, visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.